0: Jonah 3, 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort, And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals?
1: Well, that is the feel-good ending to the book of Jonah that... uh you maybe were familiar with, but maybe hearing for the very first time. I, I, I don't know in your story, though I'm sure it exists somewhere, uh, a book that you've read or a show that you binged or a movie that you went to see where uh, you got to the ending and you were like, what? What? Come on. Like that's how you're gonna end this thing. Like you're gonna just gonna sell me another book, you're gonna sell me another movie, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna wrap it up that particular way. Like it's a dissatisfying ending for you. You you've certainly related to some type of media where that's been the, the outcome. Um, you know, where you just can't get a glimpse of the vision that they're trying to communicate—the screenwriter, the director, the author—and and and that's really what is going on here. Maybe for some of us this morning, like like the part of the story that we knew was that the the way that the, we've kind of internalized even the story from how it's been told to us is is that the story of Jonah ends in Nineveh with like a crowd of people hoisting Jonah on their shoulders going Jonah Jonah or Yahweh Yahweh because like just the tide of the movie is different right like the the way that things are going to go in Nineveh is going to look different we don't have to solve all those questions and and if you grew up like I did in the multi-camera sitcom right like Jeff Franklin Productions will come in and add a little bit of music to it. It'll sound really beautiful and and kind of heartfelt. (laughs) But that's not the reality of this story. And where you may find it unsatisfying, Jonah finds it even more unsatisfying. So how do we make sense of this unsatisfactory ending to the book of Jonah, right? For, for how we tell stories in the West where there's a conflict like in Jonah chapter 1 where Jonah is being introduced to the idea that the Ninevites need to have their, um, you know, their reckoning of sorts and someone needs to confront them about their sin and their violence and their iniquity. And so Jonah, rather than do that, decides to run 2,400 miles the other direction, books passage on a ship. On On the course of doing that, finds himself shipwrecked, swallowed by a fish. Jonah chapter 2, transition to that. He cries out to God for, uh, for help and support. Calls out and says that God has met him in the pit. Jonah 2 ends with Jonah being vomited onto dry land and going to fulfill the commitment, um, having this new lease on life. And then, you know, it all kind of coming to pass where the people of Nineveh go above and beyond in their repentance this modern superpower for Jonah's time the Assyrian empire who has inflicted a great deal of harm and a great deal of violence to other people has a moment of clarity where they see their sin, they see their iniquity and desire a new direction. Uh, if you've missed one of the three weeks preceding today and you want to dive into any of those themes, we've expounded upon them further. You can find that on our YouTube channel or in our podcast feed. But, but this fourth chapter, this unsatisfying ending, is where we're going to, to linger today. With all these other things where we, we're, the, the story should have ended... Why does it end here and what is is our uncomfortability and uh, say about our own stuff maybe that we're wrestling with this morning? What can we learn about God in it? And then where do we see Jonah being invited to experience the very same thing? So so let me recount these two exchanges that take place. Uh, The first one is that jonah uh in hearing the news you know that uh the the people of nineveh modern day uh mosul iraq have turned away from their evil ways he relents and chapter 4 verse 1 to jonah this seems very wrong and he became angry he prayed to the lord isn't this what i said lord when i was still home this is what i tried to forestall by fleeing to tarshish i knew that you are a gracious and compassionate god slow to anger and abounding in love A God who relents from sending calamity. Now Lord take away my life for it is better for me to die than to live. The last time Jonah prayed in the book of Jonah. Jonah was calling to God from the belly of the fish. Saying that God met Jonah in the belly of the fish. We actually you know shared stories together in week two. About God meeting us in the belly of the fish. That was the moment that Jonah had the last time Jonah prayed. But now Jonah is saying, I I knew you would. I knew you would do things this particular way. I knew that this was how it's going to go. We're getting a little bit of a glimpse into Jonah's heart. That maybe where we would have projected our own motivations upon Jonah in chapter 1. And we would have said, well, it's a tough assignment. They're tough people. It's not really about, not really probably a safe thing for Jonah to go do. Um, He's actually giving us a little bit of excavation. No, that wasn't really the problem. The problem was that I knew you you would do something like this. I knew that you would, like, leave them off the hook, so to speak. And he actually quotes God back to God, which, that takes some guts, right? (laughs) Like, he quotes God back to God, Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Jonah quotes part of the verse. So I want you to pay attention to uh, chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Uh, This is is happening in the context of the people of Israel... ...being delivered from oppressors in the hands of Egypt... ...going on their own journey to set up a a new society and a new world... ...with with Yahweh being the one that's holding them all together... ...and what that looks like. Check out chapter 34, verses 6 and 7... and, ...and this particular passage that Jonah quotes. He says, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming... ...the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness maintaining love to thousands forgiving wickedness rebellion and sin yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation now if you're hearing that for the first time or the hundredth time uh the part of it you likely have the most theological wrestling and trouble with is the second part of it. But that's the part Jonah doesn't have a problem with here. It's the part that Jonah wants. Hey, these people have done horrible things to us and to surrounding nations. Like, can we get a little of verse 7 after this? Can we get a little bit of verse 7? I don't want to linger in verse 6. The part that you're very comfortable with as a Westerner, as a person disassociated from the nuances and the emotions of the story, are like, yeah, I mean, like, I love the idea of a loving and gracious and compassionate and merciful God. But Jonah's like, no, no. So he actually, and this is a great maybe just window, maybe even into our own biblical exegesis. Like, when we read the Bible, it's also important to let the Bible read us. Because in selectively pulling out part of it and only a part of it, there's actually a window into what Jonah is struggling with. Which is this this reconciling, like reconciling, what feels very paradoxical. That God can be compassionate and merciful and yet just. And this picture of justice is very different than the one Jonah would dole out if Jonah were in the seat. So we get a window into what he's dealing with. You, you, I knew that you would be the person that would relent. I knew you'd be the person that would only be the God that clings to verse 6. But doesn't actually go to verse 7. Which is what I actually want here. And so verse 3. Now Lord take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. There's, a, there's one a commentator who said in this moment what Jonah's kind of saying is. I'd rather die than live in a world where, you, where I have to be like you. or I have to behave like you would behave in this situation. God responds. We're not told if it's audible or a burning bush or an inner feeling, but we, we get a response from God here. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Which, which I would equate for the moment, right, to, to when you ever just see a parent like operating with a depth of patience... Or, or a barista, or someone that's operating with a depth of patience to a person that is not deserving of any kind of patience. We're like, if I was the person behind the counter and had to turn my little screen to you, and I, like, I would say some different things, you know? Like, like he's. We can look at this and go outside of the situation. God is being exceedingly patient with Jonah here. When God says, "Is it right for you to be angry?" There's an invitation below the surface, isn't there? Like, Jonah, catch up for a minute. Like, like as a parent, you might be like, say that again. Like, just say it out loud again. Maybe process the thing you just said out loud, right? Uh, or, or in a meeting where someone blows up the meeting, you know? Like, can you say again what you just said? Because like, if you say it out loud, maybe you'll catch up to yourself and realize that that's a really outlandish thing to say. It goes further. So John, second exchange, right? We don't, we're not told what Jonah answers or how Jonah answers or even if Jonah answers. He may just blow through it the way that a child or a a customer that's like spun up about something, the amount of pumpkin in their pumpkin spice latte, whatever it is, you know, like he's just, he blitzes right past it, perhaps. Verse 5, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city and there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. In the, in the Old Testament, when judgment comes upon cities and places, it often comes from the east. So there's an inference here that what's what maybe Jonah's like looking for is like he's got his popcorn ready. And he's like ready to see that, look, it's not going to last. Like this moment of repentance. You ever had that before where someone's like, okay, like it's peaceful, give it 15 minutes and it'll be erupting again and we'll all be at each other again and it'll just be a disaster again. Like Jonah has like set up shelter and is just waiting like for the moment that the Ninevites are going to like finally get what's coming to them. He's got a little shelter built and then get this, verse 6, then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade to his head and ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at the dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head and it grew faint. He wanted to die and he said, it would better, be better for me to die than to live. Did you catch the word that was said multiple times here? God provided, which is a callback to chapter 2 when God provides the fish. There's, there's something God is giving here. Like the author wants us to capture that, that some of the things that's happening here are, 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 are grace that God has provided or something that God has provided to, to maybe give space for this conversation. There's a, there's a plant provided to bring Jonah a little bit of shelter and a little bit of reprieve and shade to maybe let his mind and his heart and his body catch up to one another. The Midrash suggested that the number of plants, uh, number of leaves on the plant may, uh, by, by Jewish tradition, may represent the number of leaves of the nations that were surrounding. The, 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 the nations like the Assyrian Empire that, uh, that, that maybe needed that, that same compassion and mercy from God. That, that's just part of their, their respective tradition. And so you have this leafy coverage Maybe intending to give Jonah a bit of a reprieve. Let his mind and his heart and his body catch up to one another. Find himself again. So, but then that goes away. God provides a worm. And that goes away. The Sabbath is over. And all of this thing coming from the east that was supposed to be for the Ninevites, he's now experiencing the elements of. He's, he's got sunburn on his nose perhaps and he's feeling the 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 wind and the elements begin to scorch him and again he acts out in a particular way he wants to die and he says it would be better for me to die than to live God asks a second time is it right for you to be angry about the plant so not just now angry in general but there's a specific question about this plant listen to what he says It is, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. Big feelings. This is where Jonah ends. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, it died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, And also many animals. So you are spun up about a plant that you didn't plant, that you didn't nurture, that you didn't water, and yet you feel nothing but contempt. You feel nothing but contempt for a city in which the story could be told that, you know, remember that presumably, right, if, if the Ninevites take God at God's word, they're going to cease the operations of injustice that have been perpetuated up to this point. Jonah's actually gotten part of what he has hoped for, right? The ceasing of oppression, the ceasing of violence, the ceasing of that perpetuation, and, and yet... As God's pointing out, like, he can't enjoy it. Like, you, you, you can see the sadness about a plant, but you can't see the sadness about 120,000 people being destroyed while you sit east of it and eat popcorn. Popcorn is a, not something that's in the text. I should probably point that out, right? Like, don't take my word for that. He's not eating popcorn. But, you know, there is a sense of, like, anticipation So what do we do with this text? <laughs> what, do we, what do we do? You know, first of all, the literary style that we're being given here, right? A, a history book by itself would tell us what Jonah said or did in response. But, but, a, but a genre that's trying to get us to see ourselves in the story and leaves it open-ended. We're not told what Jonah does, but the question is sort of like, what will we do? What will we do? Rather than Monday morning quarterback what Jonah did and how, what you would do differently if you were in Jonah's position, I, the, the question really here is, can you see yourself in Jonah? Can you see yourself in Jonah? Well, where is Jonah? Let's, let's recap, right? Have you ever, have you, have you, has, can you see yourself in any of these following ways? Can you see places where you, the pain that you've experienced, the hurt that you've gone through, has hardened your ability to see the humanity of other people. You know, it's maybe moved to hatred. It's moved to a those people situation. Have you you ever, in your own love of your own country, and your own homeland, been moved to hate other countries and other homelands and other racial groups because of the, the protection of your own identity? Have you ever let the self-righteousness to your own blind spots, you know, like the blissful unawareness of the impact that you have on others lead you to obsessing over the things everybody else does wrong, but, but ignore your own behavior? Have you ever, <laughs> in your anger, let a picture of justice or forgiveness become distorted in your mind? Can, can you can you remember that it's it's very easy, just like there's a parable of the unforgiving servant where you've been maybe forgiven of of something little, but then you've like you've desired like good old Texas style justice to happen to someone else? And like, hey, we're not keeping score, but if we were keeping score, these are not equal things, right? like like if if the answer to any of those things is yes, then, then have we got a book for you, right? Like, they, like, there is something in this. Like, I think it's very important to point out that, that the problem in the book of Jonah is not that Jonah is angry. It's, it's, the secondary, it's, the, it's the secondary emotion of anger being confronted and dealt with. Jonah, why? Why are you angry? See, we're angry because we feel something else. We're angry because we feel the sting of injustice or we feel the grief or loss or or the betrayal of a particular thing. And the invitation here with tremendous patience from God is like, Jonah, can you see yourself here? Can you see what this has done to you? Can you see that you would weep over a plant, but you are like ready to celebrate the destruction of 120,000 people? and animals right and the animals who by all accounts have done right like maybe there's someone in that 120,000 people who have done something but but the livestock probably not like a disproportionate like like have you ever just been around someone that's really hurting and you can just you can just see in them the amount of exhaustion and, and spin-up. Like you can just tell that the thing they're holding on to, they've held on to it with such a ferocity that it's consuming and controlling them. And you just you can kind of look at them with love and go, you must be exhausted to hold on to this. And to hold on to it in this particular way. And the invitation of this text is to see ourselves in Jonah. right? To maybe see the places where we would weep over the plant but struggle with the compassion and mercy being extended to someone else. There's a passage in, uh, in Luke chapter 15 where Jesus tells a story about a father and two sons. And the, one, of the, one of the sons, the younger son, it's always the babies. They get away with everything, right? Like, I'm the older brother. So, like, the babies get away with everything. The babies say to the, the dad, like, hey, I wish you were dead. Let's just pretend you are. And I'll take my inheritance now, thank you very much. And he goes and he squanders an inheritance very, very quickly, fractures a relationship with his brother, fractures a relationship with his family. And, uh, and off he goes. Well, it goes poorly, as you can imagine, a scenario like that might. And he comes to the end of himself where this first century Jewish guy is sleeping amongst pigs, the depths of, like, uncleanliness, and comes to the end of himself and says, basically, okay, it's time for me to go back to my father and just ask for a reprieve, right? But now I've got to, as you might, like, I've got to rehearse the speech that's going to get me back in God's, in, in his good graces, right? And the father figure being God. And, uh, and his life has gone on and this father has like, gone about his business while the son has been off squandering things. He sees the son coming from a way off. Which, by the way, is intended to evoke that he's been looking He's been waiting, he's been paying attention, looking and hoping for the day this might come to roost, right? And, and so as he sees his son coming from a long way off, he, he doesn't just wait and he doesn't give him some space to rehearse the speech. He doesn't wait for him to clean up or go to the bathroom or just wash that stuff off your face before we can have a conversation. Like he, he does something that, uh, that first century old stately men do not do. He hoists up his robes and he runs toward the son While he's still a long way off. And we have in that story of the prodigal son. One of the most beautiful encounters with the grace and mercy of Jesus. That is extended anywhere else in the scriptures. It's one of Jesus's most beautiful stories. What you may not remember from the passage is that there's another brother watching all of this take place and so when a ring is extended which sort of restores the sonship and a feast is thrown and the fatted calf is killed there's a guy on the other side of this going like so we so you follow the rules around here and you don't get fatted calves you follow the rules around here and you don't get like a feast or a celebration okay i see i see what i see the way it goes and the, the parable actually ends with you know, like, hey, everything, everything that you had before, son, you still have. But this son of mine is dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found, right? In other words, what, what Jesus is stating here is that what Jesus, like the, Jesus has the ability to differentiate between... Are there consequences and natural things that have to be dealt with and confronted while the younger father and the son restore their relationship... Yeah, of course, but that's not what we're dealing with right now. What we're dealing with right now is that there's someone who's turned their heart back and said, I I want this. Let's not pretend that it won't be messy for the Ninevites to walk out the picture of repentance when, just as in your own culture, things sometimes move at a snail's pace, right? Right? Justice sometimes moves very, very slowly. Let's not pretend that it's not going to be messy to watch the Ninevites navigate these next steps. It will be. But God is saying to Jonah, and I think saying to us, like, look at what this has done to you. Look at what you are unable to experience and enjoy in your own story as you Obsess with what's lacking, or the things you can't control about the Ninevite story. No, you can't control the Ninevites' behaviors because if you if you if you would, you wouldn't do what they're doing, right? You kind of wanted them to be destroyed. So pay attention to those things in your own heart. Pay attention to those things in your own story. There's a patience God extends to Jonah that I think is being extended to us to see and wrestle with. The places where Jesus' justice and Jesus' mercy are messy. And they're, they're probably messy in your life in more than one area. In, in your own internal soundtrack with you. But also in how you deal with and confront the people around you. The city you live in. The nonsense that happens sometimes in the city you live in when hurt people hurt people. And you're trying to process how do I be an agent of reconciliation in the midst of it? The second conversation, I think, is similar to the first. Maybe can we see ourselves in Jonah, but can, can, we, see, can we see God's re- wide reaching mercy coming to the Ninevites? So, as we look at how, how things land for the Ninevites, what is the, what is the invitation to us? and i think one of the things that's maybe just good to keep in mind for us today is that there might be some of us who are really struggling with a place that we've been there's some of us are really struggling with maybe the shame of, of something that's happened in our story a, a thing that like no one else in the room knows but we know and it like plays over and over and over as a soundtrack in our head you know with with accusatory you language like if the world just knew about that They cancel you. They quit you. They want nothing to do with you. And the grace being extended to the Ninevites, the mercy being extended to the Ninevites, is a mercy and an invitation to you. That Romans chapter 5 verse 8 plays out in this sense of going, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not not when we, we figured out justice and mercy intersected. We wrote a 34-page paper about it. We got an A on it. We, we, you know, not, not when we had it all figured out. Like when, even when it was a bit of a mystery to us. But we, we reached out our hand and said, I need that. I want that. I cannot keep going like this. Like the people of Nineveh. That God's mercy reaches out to that space. That's good news some of us need to receive this morning. That, that places where we refuse to give ourself grace are places God is waiting for us to receive some grace. Places where God is inviting us to walk free of shame Or places where we can retire living in the perpetual existential shame of our story. We get a glimpse into God's character as well. In this exchange with the Ninevites, so I'll come back to Jonah. I'll swing back to Jonah for just a moment. Walter Wink is a theologian that says uh, he he talks a lot about like nonviolence. That's one of his you know big points of of entry. And then he, so he has a lot to say, probably uh, timeless words about some of the things that are happening in our time. But he he says something really interesting about um, our relationship to our enemies. Essentially saying uh, this: he says there is in fact no other way to God for our time but through our enemy. For loving the enemy has become a key both to human survival in the age of terror and to personal transformation. Either we will find, either we find the God who causes the sun to rise on the evil or good, or we may have no more sunrises. Right, just thinking about that, you know, practically, right? The first part of what he says is like, hey, modern warfare folks, if we're going to live this eye for an eye thing, we're going to have a really short timeline. Like if that's how we're going to solve every conflict, that's how we're going to solve every issue, there's not going to be a lot of us left. And whether you agree with that or disagree with that, that's not really the conversation I actually want to point us to. I want to point us to the second part of the conversation, which is the way you feel about those who you feel like stand against you or your enemies. There's a space in processing that that teaches you something about your own like gaps in understanding the grace and mercy of Jesus, but also a little bit about yourself. The places where God is continuing to work. Now let's let's be very clear about this. This is not, this is not like, hey, hold hands with everyone who's harmed you and have thanksgiving and like put yourself in terrible situations that you shouldn't, you know, like this is not to say like, let's pretend that nothing's wrong and sweep it under the rug. That's not the invitation of a passage like this. The imitation of a passage like this is like, as we're watching forgiveness and grace and mercy play out in Nineveh, we're going to be exposed to things on the journey that we struggle to make sense of. And whether or not Jonah and the Ninevites are ever going to have a meal together and go back to, you know, have homecoming celebrations (laughs) is not the point. The point is pay attention to, as you process your feelings about your enemies, the invitations that are extended to you in them. Right? Like, like, I'll be very, I, I can't solve this in 30 seconds, which is what the timer says I have, right? But like, when I think about the people who have wronged me, harmed me, slandered me, said untrue things about me, people that I have big feelings about, whether it's fair to have big feelings about them or not, right? Like, one of the ways I practically get out of my own head is embodying what Jesus said in the New Testament to like love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. And and here's what it's never done. It's never like magically brought us back to a Thanksgiving table. But many, many times it's changed me. It's changed how I've processed my own grief, how I'm processing my own anger, who I'm taking my anger out on what I am projecting to the universe, what I'm bringing into the coffee shop, what I'm bringing into worship. It's a vital part of how God wants to work and move in our story. And so what we're actually talking about here is is wrestling with and and creating some space to consider the way of Jesus. And that's an invitation as, as, as the Ninevites are receiving God's mercy it's the invitation of the place in the shade. How do I receive the grace and mercy of Jesus in this particular part of my story? Um, there's, there's something uh, that I think frames the, the, the tail end of the, the last passage. Would, you know, this is going to move us to a time of communion. Is, is that uh, this, this invitation that God says that you've been concerned about the plant, though you did not tend to it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight. It died overnight. Should I not be concerned about the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell the right from their left as well as many animals? Um, that, that's, that, that ending connects me to one of the words and phrases of Jesus on the cross where Jesus, in the midst of being beaten and mocked and spit upon and betrayed and processing all of those respective things, has the ability to say, "Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Like if they could see it finished, if they could see the finish line if they could see it all come to, to fruition, maybe they wouldn't be spun up the way that they're spun up. It's messy. <laughs> to to live in a world where people are acting up and they're acting out and they're projecting forth and you're caught in the midst of it. There's anxieties and hurts and pains that that creates that are very, very real to your story. And so for you, communion this morning is not a place to like just go, well, okay, you said forgive, and I'm going to (laughs) forgive. Fine to bring those feelings and to admit that it's really exhausting to live in a space and time like that. And to let the grace and mercy and justice of Jesus just wash over you fresh. But for those of us who are the ones acting up and acting out and throwing our nonsense at everybody and everyone and every to everything, everybody, like to, to, to let the grace and mercy of Jesus where we celebrate that, that sin and death have been conquered to say, hey, for, for you, you don't have to keep spinning up the same way anymore. But the invitation of communion is to receive what's been extended to you. To really let it wash over your story. There's four stations in the room. I invite you this morning to, to, to pause, to remember, to wrestle to to bring what we celebrate in communion, which is the presence of God and the unconditional love of God conquering sin and death, to carry that back to your seat and to let it arrive in what's really going on in your mind and your heart today. Because perhaps your story, if it's anything like mine, is as messy as Jonah's pray and we'll move to communion God the moviegoer, the binge watcher the voracious reader we often want our stories neat and tidy wrapped up the way we would have them this story doesn't end that way because our lives don't end that way there's, if we're if we're honest, maybe even more to be in touch with than we want to be in touch with today. God, we move to this time to remember you, to to bring these things before you, and ask for the hope of of an empty tomb and a living resurrection to meet them not not from platitudes and just let it all go but to but to process those things differently in light of what your grace and mercy have done and our remembrance of you god help us to do these things in the name of jesus